Hey there, this is Jamin Warren, and this is the Kill Screen Podcast. On a walk around Old Goa, Gayatri Kotakal chanced upon an archaeological dig. Her curiosity swelling, she jumped over the fence to see what was on the other side, a mysterious severed hand thought to belong to an ancient Georgian queen. The traveling hand, inspired by this archaeological mystery, takes players on a labyrinthine journey through time, space, and civilization to unveil the story behind this ancient artifact. Part of an ongoing project, a meditation on the methodology of game-making and critical practice, the traveling hand offers a reminder to the struggle of holding on to heritage, identity, and ethnicity. Gayatri walked us through her immersive installation at Tent Rotterdam, the latest iteration of The Traveling Hand. Made up of a constellation of stories about religion, colonial, imperial power, archaeology, geopolitics, marginal histories, and resistance, the game board is set for three players. Each play is unique and lasts one hour, while there are multiple storylines to explore at the same time. We had a wonderful conversation, and here we go. Tell me a little bit about like your upbringing and the first time that you thought you might want to be an artist. I was born and I was brought up in India, like uh, in South India, next to like a big city. So I didn't live in the city. I was living outside. Yeah, I was like living in the wilderness. more. Like. <laughs> <laughs> so I have more exciting stories of catching snakes. I didn't have the opportunity to have internet till very late and even ah. game still very, very late. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the first time that you got on the internet or the first time that like you felt like you started using technology on a more regular basis? The first time was when I was just passing out of uh, high school. So that was like 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pretty late, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you have a favorite spot to like spend outdoors? You know, I think you know, we grew up now, everyone has phones and, you know, you spend so much time in digital spaces, but as a kid, was there a spot that was particularly special to you? Near the house, uh, I mean, not super close by, like a 20 minute walk, half an hour walk, and also running through a couple of people's fields and stuff. And there was a nice place with uh, rocks and stuff like this. So I would go there with friends for like stargazing and, you know, that kind of stuff. Did you have any like creative influences growing up? It's interesting because a lot of your work is mixed media, but also is very digital in nature. But were there other creatives that inspired you when uh, when you were younger or inspired you before you got started? I would definitely <laughs> say that back in India, I was always trying to surround myself with these creative people, like, you know, theater actors, writers and poets. And they were just so animated in the way they would talk about their work and stuff. So I was more drawn to that. Mm. It was all always like after a show or something, they would all meet up and talk about that working out this way. And yeah, I was just surrounding myself with these crazy people, you know. <laughs> Yeah, because my parents are doctors, so I had to go looking for people I could connect with. And I was interested in this world where imagination comes alive, right? I was always very jealous of people who had multi-generational creative families, right? Where my dad did this or, you know, (laughs) my parents did this and then they brought me into the studio. And that's how I knew that I wanted to become a (laughs) a filmmaker, an artist or something like that. Oh, yeah. No, mine was the opposite. I mean, they wanted me to be a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever consider becoming a doctor? Did that thought ever pass your mind? Yeah, yeah, it did. 
and it left quite <laughs> uh, too much to the books. Oh my God, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have degrees in psychology and, and film production and a master's from Dutch Art Institute. Can you tell me a little bit about like how you know some of your academic interests have influenced the, the work that you've engaged in now? Psychology, that was quite some time ago, but I would say like they have influenced in a way in how I like negotiate with social situations that I encounter during my creative process. And with film production, I had a real problem with the power dynamics when you're doing a film, you know, with the camera and the director and the crew. And I wanted to always do away with hierarchy and everybody kind of works on the film together, a small team and stuff. And then I got into experimental filmmaking because of that. And yeah, somehow quite naturally, I got into being an artist by actually making games. Uh, yeah. We've talked to a bunch of different people who use game making as part of their creative practice. It's interesting because it really runs the gamut. Some people grew up playing video games and then found their discipline coming out of a love of video games. Some people were not big on playing video games, but got interested in it later in life. So they had already established a creative point of view or a creative practice and then looked at games as a thing that they could add. How did you find your way to games as a way to express yourself? It was actually because of this one story that kind of started haunting me uh, and following me and I became obsessed with. And I just realized that it was just not one story and they were like exploded into like many, many stories. I just felt like games somehow like really embraced that form, mm. you know, rather than like compacting it into linear film form or something like this. So I started looking at how games can help me share the same experience of investigating these multiple stories, you know? Yeah, like even games that are like linear, there are multiple ways that you can sort of approach them as a player. You get a lot of agency to explore, which is very, you know, it's very different from a lot of other art forms where there's kind of only one relation. It's a one-way relationship. So you're looking at a painting or you're watching a film. Like those are things that tell you what they are and then you make sense of them. And games have such a wonderful active participatory role in terms of the way that viewers respond to them. I, I did want to talk about the traveling hand because it sounds like that was something that you had started thinking about it in one way and then move towards games as a more final and complete way to express the, the thing that you're trying to do. Could you tell me a little bit about the origin story for The Traveling Hand and how you ended up <laughs> making your way into games for, for that particular piece? Yeah, I was actually working on another project. It was an experimental documentary in Goa about a bunch of villagers playing a game ritual with a semi-divine being called the Gana. And while working on that and researching that particular game festival or game ritual, I came across these huge ruins that I wanted to shoot film in and they were closed for the public but I jumped over the fence and I went <laughs> into the ruins and I saw that there was an excavation in process. The archaeologists were quite friendly and they shared with me what they were working on and that's how it started. For me the image of a displaced hand of a queen from 17th century Georgia landing up in Goa through some kind of obscure macabre event just started haunting me and I wanted to like research more on that. 
What was it about that particular space that you were looking for? You know, it's rare that you come across something that sort of fits or looks the way that it does. What, what was it about that space that, that captivated you? It's a majestic, huge, beautiful ruin. And the whole roof of that ruin had collapsed to the ground. So it had these weird protrusions. And one of the stories of this semi-divine being that plays the game with the villagers is that it goes through Goa and it goes through these Portuguese ruins and into the sky and stuff. So I wanted to look for the right ruins for this kind of story. Mm, the right ruins. That's a great way to put it. What were the archaeologists looking for? What were they like uncovering? What was special about that particular site for them? They were actually not looking for this hand. They were doing <laughs> a very clinical architectural survey of these particular ruins because these ruins were the biggest church that was built in Portuguese Goa at that time. Like the biggest church of the Portuguese empire in the east. Wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's interesting that they were so willing to let you <laughs> come and investigate and talk with them. I don't know, maybe archaeologists are just like that. Yeah, they're quite actually chilled out. Um, and I'm also quite persuasive and I show a lot of interest and stuff. They must have thought I was a student of archaeology or something. Right. Why else would you be there? <laughs> Did you stay in touch with them like throughout the process? Did your interactions with them extend past that initial meeting? Yes, I, I did stay in touch with them. And in fact, the case hadn't yet closed. They were still trying to prove whether it was this queen's hand. So I was doing like a parallel investigation following the, this one lead that I had of a Georgian filmmaker who came to Goa. So I went looking for his footage. So I was doing like a different kind of parallel investigation. And then I would come back to them and we would share updates and stuff like this. Yeah. Now, in terms of like your process, because it sounds like at this stage of the process, you're mostly doing research, but also film work as well. When did you decide that you wanted to start using like game environments and physical interactive installations for this experience? Yeah, I mean, I started with thinking of a video game, <laughs> naturally. But then I realized that the world, the story world is really huge. And this, I mean, it just kept growing over the years. You know, uh, I thought it would just be a 17th century. Then it was, you know, Soviet Georgia in the 80s. Then there was Persia. Then there was Portugal. I was like, okay, the story world is growing really huge. And I won't be able to make the video game that I want to make. <laughs> Yeah, so then I kind of pivoted back to, you know, why not make a kind of uh, tabletop game, but make it a hybrid game uh, with my own console. So that's what I did next. <laughs> yeah, no, that's like often a challenge. You see this a lot with, um, particularly with independent game makers, where they have an idea in their head. And since games allow you to do anything, like anything is possible, except time and resources you know, often constrain the, the image or whatever that you ultimately might have in your head. Can you describe like, you know, for folks who, you know, who might be listening to this that haven't seen the work or watched the trailer or seen some of the images, could you just describe a bit like how the traveling hand works and what the player experience is, is like for that title? It's a bit difficult <laughs> without visual cues, but I mean, I have my own lexicon as well for the board game, you know, you basically are exploring this mangrove game world, which is itself modular 
So it can be like any shape. So each game is kind of different, how you plot the game world from the start. And you have to excavate for, you know, resources, which I have called as time, memory and stone. And you have to resurrect these ruins, which are actually small pop-up kind of ruins modeled from actual ruins in old Goa. And that's when you sort of find a film molecule, which is this weird thing that I made where a small segment of film is inside these glass enclosures or like a glass plate that can only be detected by this console. And the console opens up like a puzzle, which you have to kind of solve using these knobs. It's very much like knobs that you have for electronic pedals or something like this, you know? Right, yeah. And the whole idea of this console is that I like to make the the interactivity unstable. Mm. Since the movements you make with these knobs is like very precise, almost like surgical. And it kind of changes the way you're breathing, the way you're interacting with this console as well. And what you're doing with this puzzle, which is almost like an oscilloscope puzzle. And then that's when you kind of unlock or unfold a film molecule and you are witness to some archival footage and images and story. And then you have to kind of choose your own investigative path from there. Like, are you more interested in this secret fresco or are you more interested in the person who actually found the letter, which is like the first evidence in this case? Yeah. The stories that come out of, you know, the, the, the material that you've used, is it fictional? Is it based on historical work? Is it a blend of the two? Yeah, what's the relationship between the actual existence of some of these places, like Old Goa, for example, or the Georgian Queen? What's the relationship between that and things that you've influenced or wanted to include? Because I, I suspect it's not a documentary, right? So yeah, what is that relationship between those two different places? I mean, I try and keep the actual pieces of evidence true to the case because it's not yet solved in reality as well. You kind of make your own hypothesis as well at the end, whether it is the queen's hand or not, or is it still traveling somewhere. But in between places where you don't have any documentation and you're trying to figure out how things connect. When I am thinking of the historical fiction, I tend to move more towards you can say like a magical realism or science fiction-y kind of space. I was really excited when I found out about the Soviet part of the story. You know, that was for me like, oh, I can start looking at some Soviet sci-fi aesthetics. (laughs) Yeah, so it comes in like quite smoothly here and there, but I try and make the actual pieces of evidence quite true to what happened because the story the actual story itself is quite unbelievable actually in terms of like your process what were the tools that you use because one of the things that certainly interests me is that you know by virtue of you being sort of a mixed media creator what were some of the tools that you went down to create this particular experience and i'm also interested in like what the process of play testing the experience was like because it didn't just debut so you know you got to a place where you felt like it was finished and ready for the public so yeah i'd love to hear a bit more about how you went about going from initial concept to final installation the main set of game tests 
testing actually happened with the hybrid board game, which was much earlier. I think in 2018, I finished that one. And that took quite a bit of game testing and discarding a lot of ideas and inventing new ones. And the one with the installation was more about trying to translate the essence of this hybrid board game into a full-scale room installation, which was quite a difficult task. But yeah, my main aim was to stay true to what I had done already in the hybrid board game. So the game testing phase didn't have space for that because by then already the COVID crisis had hit. So I could only ask a few friends to come in to do some game testing. What is it that you were like looking for? Because I think one of the things that's very interesting about using games in installation contexts is that in the commercial games world, there's an acceptable amount of user friction, you know, like if they don't understand something and a lot of times you try to smooth those out, whereas that's not necessarily the same thing in your context where, you know, you want players to not know everything or to figure things out on their own. And yeah, I was curious about how you found that balance between, you know, wanting it to be a smooth experience for people who play at one level, but also, you know, not wanting to feel constrained by making it too easy or accessible, how you found that balance. That is a hard negotiation because this particular installation was for an art space and the audience that comes to an art space is not exactly ready to invest in that kind of energy and time. (laughs) Right, Uh, yeah. (laughs) So you kind of have to warn them or you have to kind of put it up somewhere that it takes an hour to play. (laughs) Right. There are institutional requirements. It's not just like putting something on a wall or having something that's fixed and then you have a docent sit and sort of watch the experience. Is that what you mean by like the commitment on the institutional side? Yeah, because it's not really an interactive artwork. It's actually a game. So you have to invest time in understanding the rules. How do you play? And also giving time to play it out, you know, and complete it. So that's not something there in many art institutions yet. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. There isn't. And I suspect that there's like a literacy there too, right? So if the main thing that you're showing is, um, you know, digital art or sculpture, the way that you think about setting up exhibitions in your work, it's very easy for you. Whereas when you're trying to step outside of that, all of a sudden there's a whole new, there are game exhibitions, but there really aren't gallery spaces. Like there's not a place that you would show work like yours on a consistent basis. Yeah. Is that right? If you know about one, please let, <laughs> please let me know. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, me too. And for me, it's new to work in an art space with a game. And I had to tell them that it cannot be something too easy where it just becomes an interactive art piece. You know, games require some kind of thinking and decoding and that's where the fun is, right? So. Yeah, no, of course. Um, is the plan now to take this like out on the road? It's been a couple years in the making now. So, and obviously the world is in a different place than when you started, but is the plan to continue to find other sites where people could experience this? And are you required to be there to guide people through this as well? Is that a requirement, do you feel like, for for this experience? 
Well, luckily, I don't have to be there. But yes, there has to. Be. You mean like a game master or like a host? Or exactly. Again, that's like, that seems very different from like other interactive experiences where you don't need the same level of creative input from the administration or the gallery owner or the intern who's at, is at the space, right? Yeah. I'm curious how important that is to this particular experience. It is actually quite important. Uh, I mean, very few people are comfortable with just entering and, you know, reading the rules and figuring out how to play. It's always nice when uh, there's somebody there to kind of guide you in the beginning. It's one thing that the institution had to sort of invest in to have hosts to sort of help you. But it was anyway something that had to be done because of the COVID-19 crisis. Right, you know, right. People had to be let in and let out. So you started with a pen and paper prototype. From a design standpoint, was that something that you taught yourself or were you engaged with other game designers during that process in terms of getting, you know, because, you know, developing tabletop board games is not easy. So I was just curious about your experience of stepping into that space and what that was like. And I know it's not your first game either, but it's curious in terms of like what that process looked like. I'm comfortable with writing and making diagrams a lot. And then when I had to start working on the prototypes in the beginning, I, I actually roped in Dhruv. <laughs> Real quick, that's Dhruv Jani, a game designer based in Chala, India, who runs Studio Oleomingus and was responsible for actually introducing us to Gayatri's work. You can read our conversation with Dhruv on the Kill Screen site. All right, back to Gayatri. And I was like, hey, <laughs> you have to help me think through these things. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot do this on my own. You know, it is hard because you don't know how everybody's going to think, you know, when you're working out game mechanics and stuff. And you can't always play with yourself. It's always nice to have somebody else also play along. So yeah, I mean, I think Dhruv and I were kind of exploring this new form of tabletop game design together, actually. And then he went back to video game design with his work. And then I continued working with game design. Yeah. Game. Yeah, this piece is like very interesting just because there are so few formal game designers who decide to move into a non-commercial art context. It's very rare. There are arcades, obviously, and there are people who make art games that get shown at festivals and things like that. But like, it is very rare to have someone who move into like using game making and game design as part of their practice without like going to game design school. I think Drew's background was in like exhibition. I think right, he was doing like exhibition design. So you know, he's not trained as like a game designer although there's obviously some adjacencies <laughs> there um, yeah yeah that's true I mean I met him like just after he wanted to like drop out of exhibition design and he was <laughs> just starting with the story of somewhere and you can say we kind of parallelly grew together and exchanged a lot of you know notes with each other and yeah I learned how to make games together actually <laughs> The art of game design is like locked up in these, either in the institutions of game studios, or you have to go to like very expensive, fancy game schools. <laughs> those are like the two places if you want to like learn. Those resources are not as accessible, but I guess, you know, it was ever thus. Well, I wanted to ask about extinction narratives. You know, you describe that as a, you know, a game world reading and it's part of a larger series. Could you tell me a little bit about that particular work? I am interested in that use of the world, like game world narrative or game world reading and what that that looked like in a performance context? 
It was something new that I was experimenting with, a game world reading. <laughs> well, I can explain in what I did with this one story. I'm actually uh, very interested in like shape-shifting. Mm. So that's part of like how I embody myself many times in, in performances as a shape-shifting creature or something like this. And in Extinction Relatives, I, I was working with this story uh, about uh, a forest conservationist who loses signal, a GPS location of a tigress in the forest. And then she has to go on foot with this old technology of very high frequency telemetry. So, you know, you send out very high frequency, you try and catch very high frequency signals that comes from the caller that's attached to the animal. And, you know, this conservationist is not able to get these beeping sounds, you know. And in the story, the tigress disappears into the ultrasonic and spawns many cubs and stuff like this. So I was sort of like working with the idea of where the tigress wins in a certain mm. way. <laughs> and escapes being captured by, you know, surveillance and stuff like this. It was sort of like a way of trying to figure out whose world is getting extincted. And also, you know, how can we go into extinction gracefully as well? Mm. Those were like sort of the questions I was dealing with. And I would actually narrate this as an oral storytelling form. And I would play with a lot of sound waves and stuff like this into the performance. And that's how I'm kind of building up this thing of a game world reading where I'm, I'm trying to like, you know, engage with the world itself, but through performance. Mm. Is the experience the same for each performance? Like, is there a set script or is there room for improvisation during it? Yeah, a little bit of improvisation. Yeah. But I, I do stick to a script. Yeah. I was just curious like, when and where it's been performed. And you mentioned it's part of a series. So I was curious, like where you're hoping to take things from there. It was performed last year in Berlin, actually, hmm. at the Silent Green. And I I don't know yet where I'm going to perform again. Everything is quite uncertain right now. So the word game and the word video game, it carries with it. There's often baggage there associated with it. I've had similar conversations with other artists that work with games. And I'm curious about your deliberate use of that word, because there's a way in which you could just not use the word game. You could say it's an immersive experience or, I mean, there's any number of other words. I mean, at the end of the day, the, the term game is a very fluid one. So I, yeah, I'm curious a bit about your decision to use that language. My understanding is that it can, as an artist, come with a cost. People bring expectations or they think that games are low culture or stupid or they don't have an expansive definition. So tell me a little bit about the use of that word and why you decided to use that language and why that's important to you. I guess it's also like how I encountered games in my life, maybe. It's always been also through a lot of mythology as well. Uh, there's a lot of creation myths and mythology and stories where people are playing games and then you enter the game world, you know, through these narratives. I really enjoy that part of the game process or the game thinking, you know, I don't know how to say this, but yeah, it's quite a complex way of wanting to think of things because once I started making games, I realized there's so many things that happen when you are making this one thing. So I'm not really interested in like, oh, yes, I finished this one product and that's the game. It's all these other things that feed into it. 
which is part of the game making process. And I want to expand that part of it into why I say a game reading or world building in a certain way. So what I feel like I'm hearing from you is that like, you know, particularly like in the United States, you know, we have a very, I think, mechanical view of leisure. Like everything has to be like useful and productive. And that often works against games as a medium and play as an activity because it's viewed as being non-productive. And when I talk to people in other cultural contexts, that's often not the case. And so, yeah, I am curious if there's something about where you come from or the environment in which you grew up that has made it easier for you to step into game spaces than maybe somebody who's grown up in the you know, United States or in another place, insofar as you feel like that impacts your work. Yeah, I think definitely where I come from or my cultural context definitely has influenced how I'm thinking about games, how I've encountered games as well, like while working on a documentary that was commissioned about a pottery tradition in this desert region in India. I also had to take some footage from the Indus Valley civilization, which is also in the desert. And while I was there, I encountered game pieces in the display. And I was really intrigued by how those pieces could be played and what is that. And I was actually surprised that even then, people were thinking in games, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that part of it really drives me to like uh, look at games in a very open-minded kind of way. You know, how games are thought of and how stories weave into it. And even if it's video games, why we are addicted to certain kinds of video games and others not. It's still a very young space, so. Yeah. Yeah, there's like this longer tradition of like play and certainly a much longer tradition of board games. Video games have been the most widely popular and certainly the most financially successful iteration throughout the history of games and play. I guess sports ostensibly are another very successful manifestation of that. Sports are just games too, but people don't think about it in the same sort of way. But um, that's definitely like the right way to be thinking about it. I think there's one more thing that I can think of is that also in Buddhism and Hinduism, we have this thing called karma. And this whole idea of the karma is actually almost like a rule (laughs) giant game. Yeah. And if you don't play it in a certain way, then, then you have these certain choices when you die that either you become an elephant or an ant or something and you have to choose and it was dependent on your karma. So it's kind of a weird game like unconscious rule book that we follow. (laughs) I I was going to ask about that in terms of how that maybe that point of view has influenced your way of thinking about game systems as it relates to like time. I find that with myself, games are one of the few spaces where I get like actual time dilation, where I feel like I've spent a long time in a game space. I'm not checking my watch or I just, I mean, there are lots of things. It's uh, already been a week and you're still. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, not all, not all life experiences are like that. Sleep is one where, you know, you lose track of time and space. But yeah, I was just curious about how you approach this idea of time. Cause you mentioned that with the traveling hand, that's designed to be like a one hour experience. Can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with time as it relates to the work that you've developed? Yeah, very early on in uh, while I was teaching myself how to make games, I realized that if I had to tell this long story, it had to be a long game. (laughs) And and that means that, you know, the, the mechanics have to be complex and it needs to be, you know, interconnected in this, in this very interesting way. And so I was sort of like thrown into the deep end thanks to this story. 
And I really like that games can expand time to many, many hours. That makes it more rich, I think. But how do games like change the way we look at time? I mean, I have a very like idealistic expectation for games, actually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that is that... Uh, I mean, we are used to thinking of history in a very like linear way. There's this thing called chronopolitics. There's, you know, chronology has a certain politics in it so that we think of futurity in a way where, you know, progress is only marked by or controlled by a certain kind of people or ideas and stuff like this, how we think of progress and evolution and stuff like this. So I'm sort of want games to critique that itself, you know, mm. how we even look at history or how we look at chronology or can it disrupt this chronopolitics and completely change the way we look at what we think of when we think of future also. Thank you so much for listening to the Kill Screen podcast. I'm your host, Jamin Warren. This podcast was produced with help from Alex Westfall and music from Lucene. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Instagram at killscreen.dot.com or on Twitter at killscreen. Thanks so much and have a great rest of your day.